What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's August 1985, and California detectives have finally discovered the identity of a serial killer who the media have dubbed the Night Stalker. The ruthless serial killer has been terrorizing the state of California for 14 months, claiming at least 13 victims. He was a psychotic, paranoid, Satan-worshipping psychopath who derived his pleasure from the combination of lust and violence. After getting off a bus, the 25-year-old man is recognized from a picture in the newspaper. A group of locals take it upon themselves to chase after him. When they finally catch him, they beat him. He has to be rescued by two police officers. This one cop looks real close. He's, Jesus, it's the Night Stalker. It's Richard Ramirez. They didn't know it yet, but they have just made the biggest arrest of the decade. If you were going to set out to describe how to make a serial killer and a serial rapist, you could do worse than take Ramirez as your example. He has every possible constituent. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Richard Ramirez was born on February 29, 1960, in El Paso, Texas, to Mexican-born parents. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Ramirez's family faced many hardships. He was the youngest of five children, and the family had quite a, a kind of turbulent life. So they, they lived in, in several different areas, many of which had quite high levels of industrial pollution. Some of his siblings had been born with birth defects. So this family had an awful lot of, of challenges. That's something that would come to shape Richard's life and those of his siblings. So he hasn't got the best start in life. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel also weighs in on a darker aspect of Ramirez's childhood. His father was a brutal, short-tempered man. There was certainly physical violence. And Richie Ramirez shrank away, if you like, from his father. And he took refuge in the company of a cousin. In 1971, Ramirez's cousin, Mike, returned home from the Vietnam War. Mike was scarred by the atrocities he had seen and committed as a Special Forces Green Beret. So we have a grizzled, damaged Vietnam vet, Mike, and a frail, probably suggestible boy. And Mike proceeds to explain to him the dreadful things he's done to Vietnamese women while in Vietnam. He's tied them to trees, he's raped them, he's beheaded them, he's taken photographs of it. So Richard now has a real-life killing machine to look up to and to admire. Twelve-year-old Ramirez was fascinated by his older cousin, 
So he starts spending an awful lot of time with Mike. He's, he's quite a, a significant influence on young Richard's life, and he's very impressionable at this age. So, so this really is kind of cementing some of those ideas that he's had about harming other people in order to feel powerful. And that must have distorted Ramirez's value systems and the way in which he responded to women in general. They became objects, they were not real, and they became, how can I put it politely, not entirely human. And in 1973, at age 14, Ramirez would witness a horrific event that would fully shape his feeling towards women and glorify his cousin forever. One day, Mike has a, a huge argument with his wife and ends up killing her. He shoots her in the face. And Richard is there in the house when this happens. What you've got here is it's a combination of things that have been going on. So a young lad who, who looks up to people who are violent, a young lad who hears stories of violence, and now he's actually seeing it happen. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber speaks more on the influence Mike had. Mike was a powerful influence in the direction of psychopathy, rage discontrol, and the merger, and this is the most important thing, the merger of sexual impulses and violent impulses into a single coherent force. And his reaction to it is quite interesting because when he talks about it afterwards, he doesn't talk about how he feels seeing this woman murdered in front of him. He talks about it very objectively. He talks about the, the body falling to the floor, about blood spurting out of the, the wound. It's not about feeling disgusted or feeling traumatised or sad. He's, he's just giving a very cold description. And I think this really does tell us what kind of person Ramirez is turning into. Ramirez's passive reaction to witnessing this horrific event should have been a clear indicator that something sinister lived inside of him. Mike was immediately arrested and sent to a mental institution. With Mike gone, Ramirez moved in with his sister and her husband. His personal hygiene habits became non-existent, and he became increasingly alienated from society. He's lost his idol, he's lost his role model, and he is basically now starting to, to ruminate and to, to think about the things that he wants to do. So he doesn't look after himself, he's very unkempt, he's dirty, uh, he doesn't wash, and so he becomes even more of an outcast. So he very much gets lost in his own head at this point in time, and he's planning what he's going to do next. In 1977, 17-year-old Richard Ramirez was ready to act out one of the violent stories his cousin Mike had told him about. And he knew just where to set the scene. A local hotel was just the place to find unsuspecting victims for his twisted desires. While he was still at school, he got a job working at a Holiday Inn and got a passkey for all the rooms. And he took it upon himself one day to decide that while the husband was away parking the car, he would go into the room that they just both moved into and he would attempt to rape the wife. The husband comes in uh, and he sees what's going on and basically beats Richard Ramirez to a bloody pole. But this couple, they're from out of town. They're, they're on holiday. They, they don't want to follow this up. The couple decided not to press charges, a lucky break for Ramirez. Following the incident, 
Ramirez's troubling behavior began to take an unpredictable turn. He found comfort in unorthodox places. So he's dirty, he's unkempt, he's sleeping in graveyards. He's increasingly kind of going over to the dark side. And the things that appeal to him are things that most people would find really odd and really bizarre, devil worship, that sort of thing. So he's gone on this trajectory now, and I think that's only gonna go one way. At 18, Ramirez headed to California, which would later become his hunting ground. He settled into a life on the fringes of society in downtown Los Angeles, filling his days with burglarizing houses and doing drugs. Ramirez had been exposed to drugs at a young age, and by this time, was no stranger to the culture surrounding them. He's with all the runaways and the throwaways. He's immersed in a, a drug subculture. So he had no brakes on him before, really, but now he's completely off the rails, and he does become Richard Ramirez, the, the serial killer. Five years later, he would claim his first victim in what would become a vicious 14-month killing spree. On June 28, 1984, 79-year-old Jenny Vincow was found brutally stabbed to death in her Los Angeles home. There were indications she had been sexually assaulted, and the knife wounds to her neck were so severe she had almost been decapitated. This was just the beginning of Ramirez's reign of terror. Dr. Yardley spoke on what she believes caused the leap from burglary-slash-robbery to murder. In terms of what made Richard Ramirez kill, I think it was an escalation of behavior. So he's been robbing, he's been burglarizing people's houses. He has got access to people in their homes. And I think when you have that access and an opportunity presents itself, and you are the type of person who gets off on violence, who doesn't feel bad about hurting other people, then you are somebody who is likely to take advantage of that opportunity when it presents itself. So I think it is, it's a gradual escalation of behavior. Six months after the death of Jenny Vincow, Ramirez was in custody. Not for murder, but for car theft. He was convicted and served 36 days in prison. Once released, Ramirez was ready to kill again. In one night, Ramirez attacked three women inside their own homes with a handgun. Two of the three women died but one miraculously survived when the bullet ricocheted off a set of keys she had in her hand. All three attacks had a sexual motive in common. He's not someone who can form relationships with women, but he still wants women. He still wants to possess them and, and have his way with them. So he, he's only gonna do that through violent means. Well, Ramirez had as a specific part of his modus operandi to gain access uh, to his victims essentially by surreptitiously entering their home. He was at his core a burglar whose object felony was sexual murder. Eleven days later, on March 27, 1985, Ramirez was on the hunt again. He found his next victims, Vincent and Maxine Zazara, in Whittier, a city within the area of Los Angeles. After breaking into their home, Ramirez shot Vincent in the head, killing him instantly. Jeffrey Wansel and forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton talk about what happened next. Then tied up his wife, who was 20 years younger, Maxine, demanding money. Where did she keep the valuables? 
Ramirez shot her three times. And then he mutilated her, grotesquely. Eventually uh, gouging her eyes out and putting them in a jewellery box to take away with him. Post-mortem mutilation is relatively uncommon in homicide cases. They're not really the sort of planned, orchestrated murders that we see in cases like Ramirez. In those cases, you can see bizarre behaviour, both to the body before death and mutilation after death. And that's very much more about what's in the mind of the killer. Vincent Zazara, a World War II veteran, was a well-respected member of the Whittier community where he ran a local pizzeria. His son Peter remembers his father fondly. Well, my dad was a uh, immigrant from Italy, came over in the 1930s, mid-30s, something like that. And uh, he joined the army. He was in World War II. He was in Patton's army. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. He was a pretty accomplished person that, that way, and uh, everybody respected him. Peter remembers hearing the news that his father and stepmother had been murdered. I was at home, and I got a call. He told me what had happened. And we drove up. I was living in Pico Rivera. We drove up to Whittier. And I just remember um, that how could it be possible? And I was just in a state of shock. And we met all the police outside. We were outside the front door with, uh, with my fiancé at the time. And um, I wanted to go inside, but they wouldn't let us inside. I was already really upset. He said, one of the detectives said that it would just be make, make me more upset than I already was. More than 30 years later, Peter still struggles with his loss. It ruined my life. It was hard for me to get on with my life. I finally screwed my life up a lot because of it. I would be a different person, I think. We were like, Kindred souls, because he was also a veteran. I'm a veteran, and um, uh, we were just really close in a lot in a lot of ways like that. Although my dad was very very tough on the outside, it's pretty uh, pretty gentle on the inside. A lot like me that way. Meanwhile, Ramirez's killing spree was far from over. Between May and August of 1985. He continued to break into houses across Los Angeles County, killing eight more people and attempting to kill another five. While the people of Southern California grew more and more fearful, investigators began to link the murders. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber speaks more on the subject. There was no question that this is a crime really unique in its level of terror. It was unique in its level of terror for um, several important reasons. One, the lack of predictability about victim. And, And then what made it especially terrifying is the circumstances of the murders as they took place. One, that they took place often at night in the darkness. And two, they took place in a place that you ordinarily regard as the safest place in the universe, your personal home. That made this terror beyond belief. Demographics didn't seem to be a factor in Ramirez's choice of victim. Anyone could have been a target. As far as we can tell, nothing attracted him to to his victims in particular. He would often break into residences, not knowing who was in the residence, and end up, depending if it was men or women, killing them and having uh, uh, perpetrating sexual crimes against him. He was a man who had rampant chaotic impulses 
and basically attacked and killed whoever was in the room when his rage inflamed itself. Ramirez didn't even seem to favor a particular method of killing. He would murder his victims by any means necessary. This made it particularly difficult for investigators to determine who had committed these gruesome crimes. He would stab, he would shoot, he would stamp, he would rape, he would force himself on people orally. Really, he just seemed to revel in acts of violence and violation. And it was quite a while uh, before the police actually realized that they had a serial killer on their hands. So here's somebody who terrorized Los Angeles, and they didn't realize that it was the same person who was doing this till quite late on in the day. There were some similar details, though. Ramirez had begun worshipping Satan in his late teens and would often leave pentagrams at the scene of his crimes. Though the graffiti was not enough of a clue for investigators, says forensic psychologist Rex Bieber. Now, that is not absolutely unique to Ramirez. There are lots of serial killers who engage in Satan worship, as did Ramirez. By August 1985, Richard Ramirez had killed 13 people in the Los Angeles area. We are a species that craves to be in a feeling state. The serial killer, their brain is numb most of the time. So for them to feel, they have to do something that's the equivalent of smacking their hand. They have to create a level of arousal and intensity around them that, that boosts their affect range. Ramirez continued to evade police. By this time, newspapers had dubbed him the Valley Intruder. Well, Ramirez would have thought at this point in time that, that he is an accomplished predator. Because he's not getting caught, the, the police don't even know who he is. Not because he's brilliant at what he does, but it's because the police aren't putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Because his MO is all over the place, he's killing people using different methods, he's targeting a, a whole host of victim groups. As fear of the Valley Intruder spread, Los Angeles residents grew more and more fearful that they could be the next victim, and there was an increased sale of firearms and home security products. San Francisco detective Frank Falzone, hearing about the terror Los Angeles residents were feeling, hoped that the murders wouldn't spread further north. The Valley Intruder was an individual that was breaking into homes in Southern California uh, predominantly the Los Angeles area, killing the husband, attacking the wife, uh, ransacking the house, and burglarizing uh, a lot of valuable property. Every law enforcement officer was aware, but this seemed to be a problem for the Los Angeles area. So the need for high attention in San Francisco wasn't happening. Unfortunately, Falzone was about to be proven wrong. In mid-August of 1985, Ramirez started branching out from Los Angeles. The Valley Intruder was moving on, and with this move would come a new nickname. By August 1985, 25-year-old Richard Ramirez had killed 13 people and attempted to murder five others in the Los Angeles region of California. Because he was randomly breaking into homes, Anyone could be his victim, and the public was terrified. It was a summer of extreme heat, and people were afraid to leave their doors unlocked, afraid to leave their windows open. I would say every active police officer 
within the state of California was looking for Richard Ramirez. He would have been a big feather in any police officer's cap for his capture. Police were working hard to catch the killer, increasing their street presence and enlisting help from an FBI special task force. News of the Valley Intruder attacks flooded the news cycle, with Los Angeles residents apprehensively following the story. Aware of the growing media spotlight on his crimes, Ramirez moved north to San Francisco. It would be here that he would claim his first victim outside of Los Angeles. It was a Saturday morning. Uh, my partner, Carl Klotz, and I were the on-call homicide team, and we received a call to respond to Eucalyptus Street out by the San Francisco Zoo. Uh, there was a murder, so we responded out there, and the crime scene that we witnessed uh, was atrocious. The husband had been shot and killed while he was asleep in bed. Uh, the wife had been removed to the San Francisco Emergency Hospital. She had been raped, shot, and left for dead. The intruder had gone into the refrigerator, eaten their food, drew uh, satanic symbols, the pentagram on the walls in the house. He vomited after he ate their food and then he masturbated on their carpet. A uh, very sick crime scene uh, indicating a very disturbed mind. The San Francisco victims were 66-year-old Peter and 62-year-old Barbara Pan. Uh, th these were just a lovely older couple living a peaceful life, never expecting to be attacked while they were asleep in bed. Both my partner, we had seen an awful lot in our time on the police force, but we were both moved beyond normal for a homicide scene. Detective Falzone began investigating the couple's murder, unaware that their deaths may be linked to the gruesome cases he had heard about from L.A. That afternoon, after this initial crime scene visit, my partner and I went back to the office and we put out an all-points bulletin. This is an alert up and down the state of California regarding all the information that we had. And one of the key things that we had was that our victims were shot with a 22 revolver. And we had the slug for comparison. A very alert, active sergeant in the Glendale Police Department that was working the Valley Intruder case, a man by the name of John Perkins, John calls us and says, you might want to check the Valley Intruder, it's, he always uses a 22 caliber revolver. That connection there put us into the Los Angeles cases that particular day, uh, August 18th, 1985. With his hunting grounds expanding beyond the valley, the newspapers had renamed Ramirez the Night Stalker. All of a sudden, uh, the media blew this case up to be something very, very big, which it was. And now we had a link with Barbara and Peter Pan in San Francisco. So the murder count was going up every weekend. And people all over the state of California were very, very frightened. Detective Falzone began looking into other recent crimes in the San Francisco Bay Area and found another robbery report that bore a striking resemblance to the Night Stalker's break-ins. In that report, we found out that the intruder climbed through a 
bathroom window. They were not at home. Their young niece, I think she was 16 years old, she was home by herself. Hearing somebody come through the bathroom window, she panicked. She went downstairs and hid into a closet. Fortunately for this young lady, the intruder never found her, ransacked the house, stole a bunch of valuable jewelry. As a form of security, the homeowner had added his social security number to his wife's jewelry. And not long after the robbery, 290 miles away, the police got a match. The big break in the case came is when this bracelet with the serial number ends up in Lompoc, California, turned in by a confidential informant of a police sergeant on the Lompoc Police Department. While Falzone headed to Lompoc to interrogate the informant, Richard Ramirez was already moving on to Mission Viejo, California. There, he stole a car before carrying out another brutal attack on a young engaged couple. Ramirez first shot the man in the head and then raped the young woman. Miraculously, both of them survived the traumatic incident. The woman was able to recount the incident in great detail and she provided investigators with a detailed description of their assailant. Perhaps the most chilling detail she gave was what her attacker said right before he left their house. Tell them that you've met the Night Stalker. From her description, police sketch artists were able to provide newspapers with an image of the man who had been terrorizing the public for months. Police could only hope that someone would recognize the man they were after. Back in Lompoc, thanks to the social security number found on the bracelet, Falzone had tracked down a potential informant. Falzone remembers questioning him in the back of an unmarked car. I said, your friend Rick is the Night Stalker, the man that's been killing in Los Angeles and killing in San Francisco. I don't want anybody to die this weekend. We need your help. But the informant wasn't planning on giving up the full name of the man who sold him the bracelet. At least, not at first. So I'm not giving you nothing about my friend Rick. Do you understand me, you effing punk? I'm not giving you anything. And I could feel my blood beginning to boil. And I guess I, I rolled up my fist and I looked at him and he goes, oh, tough guy, tough guy. You want to fight me? And he put his hands up. And I started over the top. And at that point, I don't know if I would have finished that punch or not, but I was gonna hit him with everything I had. And he fell back in the seat and he threw up his arms in a cross manner and he screamed, Richard Ramirez. When we heard that name, I, I literally collapsed in the front seat of the police car. Detectives finally had a name for the Night Stalker. And at the same time, detectives investigating the attack in Mission Viejo had pulled a fingerprint from the car Ramirez had stolen. With a matching print and his likeness matching the description provided by the surviving victim, detectives were getting closer to catching Ramirez. On August 30, 1985, the mugshot on file from Ramirez's first arrest in December 1984 was released to media all across California. 
Retired FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon spoke about getting information to the public. When a serial killer is moving around geographically, it's really important to enlist the, the, the aid of the media, which can get the word out, uh, sketches and, and things like that, out to the public because the public becomes an asset to you. And then oftentimes, these cases are resolved by somebody recognizing the person. The following morning, on August 31st, Ramirez, fresh from visiting his brother in Tucson, Arizona, boarded a Greyhound bus. He was unaware that back in L.A., he was a newly wanted man. Saturday morning, Richard Ramirez's picture was front page in every newspaper in the state of California. But the people of Los Angeles decided they had waited long enough for authorities to apprehend Ramirez. They took matters into their own hands. When he arrives back in Los Angeles, he gets off the, the Greyhound bus and somebody recognizes him from the, the, the picture that's been circulating in the press. And essentially, that the predator now becomes the prey. Lots of people start chasing after him. And eventually, they catch up with him and, and Richard Ramirez, the serial killer, is no more. Not surprisingly, given the atmosphere in Los Angeles at the time, they attack him ferociously kicking him, hitting him. But he's pinned down by the locals. He's not caught by two of LA's finest or even the police department. He's caught by a group of local onlookers. A true citizen's arrest, you might say. At first, police didn't even know who they had sitting in their vehicle. This one cop looks real close. He's, Jesus, it's the Night Stalker. It's Richard Ramirez. He goes out over the air and announces they have the Night Stalker in custody. After 14 months of fear, Californians could rest a little easier. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, was finally done terrorizing the Golden State. Richard Ramirez had spent just over a year breaking into homes of victims who he would brutally rape and murder. And after months of evading arrest, he had finally been caught. Investigators were working tirelessly to gather evidence and get a conviction. All across California, people wanted to bring justice to Richard Ramirez. Ramirez, however, was pleading not guilty. On August 31, 1985, Ramirez was charged with 13 murders and five attempted murders in Los Angeles County between June 1984 and August 1985. His victims ranged in age from 16 to 83. Three were men and 15 were women. Retired FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon recalls what it was like to interview the 25-year-old killer. Normally, when I would interview somebody, I would try to empathize with them or get them to break down emotionally about their crimes and to confess or to, you know, admit to some wrongdoing. With a, with a psychopath, you're not going to get that. They don't have the ability to break down emotionally. And so you have to approach interviewing a psychopath like Ramirez much differently. You have to play his game, stroke his ego, um, you know, uh, almost... Uh, uh, compliment him on his individuality and, 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 and what he was able to get away with. But no matter what they tried, Ramirez would not break, says forensic psychologist Rex Bieber. Ramirez was a narcissist who believed he was 
omnipotent. He, he believed that he could fool detectives that had been you know, specially trained. And he believed that, that his ability to fool them was not simply a product of his own genius, but, but a product of the fact that he was aligned with, acting in conspiracy with Satan himself. When Ramirez finally went to trial, he was only charged for the crimes he committed in Los Angeles. At the preliminary hearing, he pleaded not guilty. The courtroom erupted at the claim. On the first day he entered and held up his hand, he had a pentagram written on his hand, and uh, he shouted out at the top of his voice, Hail Satan. His position as Lucifer's assistant was now to be glorified in front of the world's media, and particularly the American media. You can see that the courtroom is essentially a stage for him. So he wears dark sunglasses, he, he dresses all in black. He is this kind of pseudo-celebrity, and, and he, he really is enjoying it. He's lapping up the attention. So, so this is somebody who, who has attained a kind of celebrity status because of the awful things that he's done. Even with such a solid case, some of the families of victims found the idea of attending the trial too much to bear. Peter Zazara, son of one of the victims, recalled his feelings at the time. I was offered a, to go to the trial, and I didn't want to go because I didn't give a, a rat's ass about him. All I cared about was my dad and Maxine. And besides, I would have done something crazy because I was pretty upset. I'd have been in there for one minute, I would, I would, have, I'd have, I'd have been arrested myself because I would have gone off. There's no way I could have done it. There's no possible way. In fact, I don't even know how people do it. To the truth, I don't. Why would you want to do it? Why would you want to look at some scumbag who did something like that? It took three years for the trial to begin, with both the prosecution and defense having a lot of work on their hands. Among the evidence were stolen goods from many of Ramirez's crime scenes and a gun that linked all the murders. The gun belonged to Ramirez. The defense argued that all the evidence was circumstantial, and the trial would be delayed even further after one of the jury members died. But finally, in 1989, the jury came to a verdict. Richard Ramirez was found guilty of all 43 charges against him, including 13 murders, five attempted murders, and four rapes. He remained unfazed right up until the very end. A lot of his time at the trial was spent engaging in what I call bravado behavior. The message that he sent out throughout the course of the trial is that there's really nothing you can do to me. I'll let you have your trial. It'll have its outcome. Nothing will be changed because I will soon merge with Satan. Showing complete contempt for his victims' families, he responded to his sentence by saying, big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Ramirez was sentenced to death and sent to San Quentin prison to wait out his sentence. He would never face trial for his other crimes in San Francisco, but Detective Frank Falzone was finally able to charge him. The district attorney's office in San Francisco asked if we could bring him over, charge him formally on the murders of uh, Peter and Barbara Pan, he was transported to San Francisco, our county jail. I went upstairs, I met Richard Ramirez, we booked him on two murder counts. After he was booked, he was being led away to a holding cell. And he had that smile on his face that he always gave before he lifted up his hand and showed the pentagram 
symbol. The decision not to try Ramirez for the murders in San Francisco was a deliberate one. The large geographical range of the crimes committed caused jurisdictional issues, and prosecutors didn't want to do anything to jeopardize the death penalty case. On June 7, 2013, Richard Ramirez died before he could face the death penalty for his crimes. He died of complications relating to B-cell lymphoma. Ramirez had spent 23 years on death row after taking the lives of at least 13 people. He was a truly depraved individual who had no interest or concern for anyone in his path, and they were simply fodder for his great and aggravated ego. I have and can never have anything but the greatest sympathy for them. What do I think of Richard Ramirez? Not much. This man was a loser. In society, it was our loss that he was ever born. His death probably gave relief to so many, so many of his surviving family members and victims that he had murdered. Uh, his death, I don't believe, was mourned by anybody except other satanic worshipers. Uh, this was a very sick, sick person. Despite being gone, Richard Ramirez still haunts those affected by his crimes. Just took away really everything. Everything that was important to us and our family and, and all that, really. Every, like, holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, it's just pain, it's just a stab in the heart for me. There's no way that ever since that happened, I haven't had, a, haven't had the Thanksgiving or Christmas since. So that's, that's uh, what kind of impact we're talking about. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thank you to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... On December 1st, 1996, Tracy Andrews and her fiancé, Lee Harvey, were driving home after a night out when suddenly they were followed by another car. It was a chase that would end in Lee's murder. What is clear, he was stabbed in the throat, back, front, repeatedly, viciously, and continuously. Just two days later, 27-year-old Tracy gave a heart-wrenching press conference pleading with the public to help her find her partner's killer. But it was all just a story she was selling to the public. And we all kind of looked at each other and thought, this, you know, this enormous story just got 10 times bigger again if, if, she, if she is the killer. This is a woman of cunning, of deceit, 
and with a vicious temper.